Many plans live and die based on the reporting provided, but is this putting advisors between a rock and a hard place? And what are the red flags we can use to avoid some of the problems inherent in today's reporting? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of the Shift Shapers podcast is brought to you by Captivated Health, a captive insurance arrangement designed specifically for educational institutions. If you have clients in that vertical, you know the healthcare deck has been stacked against them. Today, Captivated Health offers the stability, control, and savings they've been waiting for. For more information, go to www.captivatedhealth.com or click on the company logo on the Shift Shapers website. On this episode of Shift Shapers, we're pleased to be speaking with Phil Litvin. Phil is the business development manager at First Capital Consulting and Phil has a kind of different viewpoint on reporting and some red flags that advisors need to watch for and some interesting little corners that you may not be aware of. And we we asked Phil if he would spend some time sharing his thoughts on that, and and we're pleased to have him on the podcast. So with that, welcome, Phil. Hey, David. Thank you for having me on today. Our our pleasure. The first thing is, and a good jumping off point, I think, from our pre-conversation is that a lot of people look at reporting as a one-dimensional occurrence. And and you believe that not only is that not the case, that it's not just an end of year solution, but that that may be damaging to employers. So let's start with why you believe that it's not just an end of year solution. Well, absolutely, David. I think that one of the things that many people either have overlooked or, or haven't realized is that even though the reporting mechanism for the ACA employer mandate, which is the IE 1095Cs, 1094Cs are due at the end of the year, the actual penalty assessments are assessed on a monthly basis. So compliance is essentially broken down and it's month by month snapshots. So Every time you hear people talking about these penalties, the A penalty, the B penalty of, you know, like uh, rounding up 2300 bucks or $3,400, these are actually the aggregate of the 12 months of penalties. So if you want to know what your monthly assessment is, it's actually that number divided by 12. I think that people see the 1095s very similarly to, you know, a 5500 form or a W-2 where you go through the entire year. And then at the end of the year, you aggregate that data, you put it on the 1095, ship it off, and you're good to go. However, the biggest issue with that is that if you're coming into the year with some sort of out of compliance issue, or you know maybe you've overlooked something, those monthly penalties will be assessing for the entire 12 months. So beyond all of that, I know you're starting to see some patterns in some of the data as you look at this reporting on a month-to-month basis. What does that expose and what does that show you? So 
It's actually very interesting. I think that, you know, when my organization got into the, the, to the reporting and compliance component, you know, there was many things that we didn't necessarily anticipate to see. But as time progressed and we've, you know, reviewed more and more organizations' files and, it, you know, granular data, we began to see, as you mentioned, some patterns. A few of those things are, first and foremost, that there are just absolutely too many organizations that rely strictly on some sort of automatic processing and they're overlooking things like human error. They're looking at, they're misconstruing definitions, something like an employment period and a measurement period. So you actually have these completely disparate sets of data, which many employers are treating as one set. So an example of that would be, for example, you have an employee he started on, let's say, January 1st, and this person's wage is $13 per hour. So his hire date is January 1st, but sometime in March or April, this person receives a raise, and he's now at $15 per hour. Now, in many times, these systems will begin to restart the employment period because because of this different, this wage, this wage increase. Now, in many systems, it will report as, you know, April 1st is this new employment period. So if you had an employee like that in a 12-month measurement, and at the end of the 12 months, you wanted to make sure that this, you know, employee was either full-time or part-time, if your automatic system is reporting as April 1st is the start date, then 12 months into his employment period, your measurement is only eight months in. So in these situations, it's very possible and very often we see that people are missing employees at the end of their measurements because the employment period and measurement period isn't matching up. As you look at the data on a monthly basis, do you learn other things that maybe aren't specifically reporting, but maybe employee audits and, and compliance audit and type of data? Yeah, I mean, so it, it's it's interesting too because we – very often are looking at the data on a monthly snapshot. So every month, you know, we're pulling the payroll data, the benefits information. And as the employees are in these different measurements or, uh, you know, for example, if they're basically going through a, how do you, how would you say it, a, a separate employment period, it's very possible that you'll have separate employees that aren't lining up with the full 12 months. The IRS is now starting to really get serious about this, and we're seeing some significant penalties. What kinds of things are you seeing? So if you recall, in April, there was what was called the Treasury Inspector General. He They had released the TICTA report that had warned employers that you know the ACA was coming around full swing, full enforcement. And we are actually seeing that now. I think within two months now, we've, we've seen two different phases of what's called the IRS letter 226J letters. And these are proposed penalty assessments. So we've actually had a number of different types of organizations that based on the the 2015 filings that they had, they're being assessed these separate penalties. So the highest one that I've seen was for a public entity here in California for just about $9 million. And this is due to a few reasons. There's first, it's the 1094 they had indicated that they did not offer to 70% of their workforce. So they were out of the compliance. And if you recall in 2015, the actual threshold was under transition relief because with ACA, you have to offer to 95% of your workforce, your full-time workforce, the, you know, the benefits that meet the MEC and MV. In 2015, they had allowed a 
transitional period where instead of 95%, you had up to 70% compliance. The thing that's very concerning about that is that with these organizations, especially large ones, you know, if in the first year, if you were not able to meet the 70% threshold, there's a very high likelihood that in the following years, it would be even harder because the threshold had gone up to 95%. So I think the concern is that with these IRS letter 226Js, as you're getting, you know, these proposed penalty amounts in the millions, hundreds of thousands of dollars, just as you begin to finally, you know, respond to the IRS and try to get these penalties either minimized or completely eliminated, you still haven't addressed the issue as to why the penalty had occurred in the first place. So I think any employer or most employers that had received such letters can anticipate to receive another such letter when the 2016, you know, letter 226Js are released. That's just fascinating and terrifying all at the same time. Different industries have different challenges. Absolutely. I mean, the ACA has so many moving parts and there's so much legislation that, you know, is very industry specific. In example, we have industries that employ unions, right? And then union members, particularly in the East Coast, you know, either healthcare or in construction, you'll have, you know, different unions for, you know, you'll have the electricians union, you'll have the plumbers union, the sheetrock union, the framers union, the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So you have these construction companies, for example, that are working on huge projects and they'll obviously have these separate and disparate unions for every different type of, you know, labor that they employ. Now, the issue with that is that first and foremost, these people are still full-time employees. And as full-time employees, they're, they're required to be offered insurance that meets the minimum criteria. Now, as you know, a lot of times unions offer their union members fantastic benefits, much, you know, I think industry wide, it's usually that union union plans are much more rich than other such plans. But the problem is, is that because the union is the one administering the plan, the employer, which is responsible for coverage and responsible for reporting, doesn't have the details. They don't know what the contribution amount to the union is. All they know is that the employer typically pays some sort of fee to the union for hiring folks. They don't know what the union dues are. They don't know when the plan is, when the union members are eligible and then when they're offered coverage in which plan they enroll in. So it's true that there is, for example, in this union case, something called multi-employer transition relief. But the challenge is, is that to be able to defend that code, for example, on the 1095C, you have to be able to prove in an audit that you did as a company your due diligence in ensuring that the employee was receiving the you know the the benefits that had met the minimum criteria so that's one example very specific to again you know organizations that use unions another example would be the the education industry right the universities higher education because this is a sort of deviation from regular employment periods. What I mean by that is when you and I, if we're ever going to go and start a regular job, we can pretty much expect that we're going to be working all year long. Well, minus, of course, our potential sick days and vacation days and and a few holidays. But we, we don't really have any periods where, you know, we're working less. And that's usually most industries. Education is different. We're all accustomed to summer breaks, winter breaks, 
And I guess technically under those rules, if you're in, you know, if you follow the strict ACA definition of full-time hours and workforce, that might actually change the eligibility for, you know, higher education professors and, and, and teachers. So to that end, there are special rules in regards to measuring the eligibility for these types of employees. In fact, many organizations aren't even aware that when you're adding the hours to identify this employee's eligibility, it's actually at a higher rate than the regular one-to-one hour. So one hour worked is, you know, one hour attributed to whether or not the average is over 130 hours per month. Whereas within educate, you know, with higher education, with professors and such, it's actually at about twice that rate. And now a word from our sponsor. Captivated Health is a single source solution for your clients and prospects who are in the education vertical. The founders of Captivated Health have nearly 20 years experience working with educational institutions. And over that time, They've developed a keen understanding of the unique problems these clients experience. Frustrated by a lack of control, the unpredictability of ever-increasing health care costs, and the pressures and regulations of the Affordable Care Act, these groups have been adrift in the fully insured commercial marketplace until now. Captivated Health has built a program that solves those problems, and it does so with virtually no disruption to faculty and staff while saving clients millions of dollars. We wanted you to be among the first to know that Captivated Health is building a national distribution partner network so you can bring this cutting-edge solution to the educational clients you advise. To learn more about the Captivated Health solution, go to their website at www.captivatedhealth.com or click on their logo on the Shift Shapers website. And now, back to our interview. It just sounds like there's all kinds of pitfalls. So, I mean, many of our listeners are benefit advisors. Is there a significant level of risk for advisors who reach out and help with these 1095s and other reporting? I I am seeing that happen way too frequently. And I understand that in the benefits world, it's very important to offer a service that goes above and beyond. Unfortunately, I think that because the way that the benefits industry has evolved with more and more of these sort of ancillary and administrative services being ruled in and the broker wanting to be helpful, in this particular case, I actually do see it as a very big risk. We have to remember the ACA, yes, it it is a benefits-centric you know, piece of legislation. It's, it's, it, it, it's in regards to health insurance. But that being said, the reporting mechanism is the, you know, the, the oversight is from the IRS. And the IRS is a, obviously, you know, that's a, that's in regards to taxes, something that benefits professionals typically don't have a lot of experience in. The fact is, is that the, administration, the heavy lifting that goes into keeping a company compliant is a very labor intensive job. And I just can't see that most benefits brokers have the bandwidth to be able to put in that type of time and have the wherewithal to make sure that there isn't something lurking behind the corners that is exposing their client to risk. Do you happen to know if if most E&O coverage covers that risk? Well, that's actually a very good question. Now, I can't say if most E&O covers that risk. That being said, I would speculate that it probably does not because the issue is is that the scope of services typically that go into 
again, you know, completing the reporting and the compliance component is not really the type of thing that ENO should typically cover, right? It's not the, it's not that you forgot to, you know, put a decimal place somewhere or that you misspelled a word, which ended up getting, uh, you know, changing the definition. This is a, comp- this would, that would be, in my opinion, it would be something to the effect of, you know, your contractor coming in and you ask him to fix your car and then having his bond and liability insurance cover that. It's just not within their scope of services. So advisors then are kind of between a rock and a hard place. Their, their, their clients are looking to them for advice and guidance on this kind of stuff. And yet they're out there bare without insurance coverage if they go too far. What's the advice for them? How do they approach that? How do they solve the problem? I think that it's just time for everyone in this industry in regards to this specific, you know, this this puzzle here is to basically stay in their lane. And what I mean by that is, is that everyone that touches upon the benefits world obviously has to compete with one another and they want to make the best impression. But if we agreed, and this is obviously sort of the same parable as everyone should, you know, hope for world peace. But if all the benefits broker and advisors were to understand that this is just not within their capabilities and, and either look for outside help or ask their client to understand that, you know, this is your responsibility. You have to, you know, do such and such throughout the year to make sure that you're compliant. And as an advisor, I can help you find the right vendor or I can help you find the resources to be able to get this done, but understand that this is not something that I can do, they can at least help to indemnify themselves in the situation, which I actually very recently saw where a penalty is assessed and the broker is to blame. So if if a broker even white labels, I mean, I know there are a couple of, of ACA reporting solutions where they allow brokers to white label. Do you think that that would give them exposure as well? I mean, would the, if a client got a no problem, would they come back after the broker? I think it's very difficult to say just because we're only beginning now to see the penalties being rolled out. So I couldn't really say if a broker could, you know, actually be held for damages. I can tell you that regardless of that is if a broker is indirectly even responsible for something as unpleasant as a letter 226J, chances are they're definitely going to lose the account. Case in point actually is very recently a client of mine, which was referred to by their broker, was asking for a you know inexpensive end of year reporting solution, which we did advise against, but ultimately if that's what they want, that we will help them with that. And through the process of advising them for what we saw some, you know, where we saw some potential risks, their broker, which by the way, is a great person. That being said, he advised that he can help them with administering some of the measurement components. Fast forward to just a few days ago, they had received for that year, the 2015 year, a letter from the IRS, the letter 226J, with a penalty assessment of near half a million dollars. And obviously, as soon as they received that, they bed, I think that day began to look for a new broker. I, I imagine so. So in, in the minute or two that we've got left, we, we oftentimes like to ask our guests, especially with an evolving field such as this, what do you see in the near-term future and then in the longer-term future in, in terms of reporting and how advisors may go about working with it? That's a very interesting question. I think that... I think that ultimately, ACA reporting will become commoditized. I think that as our technology improves 
And as the capabilities of existing disparate systems increase, that you will begin to see this go more along, you know, the, the, the way of payroll and, you know, different tax accounting software. But I do not see that happening in the near future. I think from a political standpoint, you know, we have seen attempts at repealing the ACA, the employer mandate in particular too. And thus far, there's no indication that, you know, that is going to happen with, within this year, or the next year. So my advice would be to every organization to, you know, heed the law of the land, understand that there are many risks, many risks with, you know, associated with reporting and with ACA compliance and to make sure that whatever your strategy is, is that it covers all of your bases. Great place to end our conversation. Phil Litvin, Business Development Manager at First Capital Consulting. Phil, thanks so much for sharing your expertise with our audience. Thanks for having me, David. The Shift Shapers Podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part, without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved.